Blog Talk Radio. and this week's live broadcast of The Way of Healing. My name is Susan Brozak, and I'm a licensed clinical Christian psychotherapist and founder of Healing Word Psychotherapy Services, my private practice. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Tonight we're going to be looking at part two of a two-part series on five key concepts of healing. So during tonight's broadcast, we're going to take a deep dive look into five more components of the healing journey. And if you'd like to hear the original uh, first part of this two-part broadcast, you can find it on Reaching Out Radio International on Blog Talk Radio, and it's archived for on-demand listening. So if you want to go back and listen to the first part, it's already there archived for you. Tonight we're going to be looking at trust, forgiveness, comfort, contentment, and repentance. We'll be unpacking each of these concepts and viewing them through a biblical lens as they pertain to emotional and spiritual healing. True healing is a journey, much more than it is a mere destination. But as you stretch your trust and faith in God and permit him to gently guide you as you examine your heart and allow him to minister to your soul and spirit, he will bring his freeing truth and healing to your heart and his transformational power into all areas of your life. So let's go ahead now and get started with the first of the five key concepts of healing for tonight, which is trust. Psalm 56, verses 3 through 4 say, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? So just to start out with some background, we've probably all heard the phrase, you can't trust anyone. And that's a statement that a lot of people tend to say after they've been hurt. So while while deception, evil, and immorality, and all kinds of other levels of wickedness have increased in our country and in our world uh, recently and also over time, Um, really offers nothing for us to trust in if we're looking to anything in the world to try to bring us a level of confidence. Um, So we need to understand that we still as Christians, even though we're not trusting in the world, we're trusting in Christ, we need to endeavor to be trustworthy individuals and need to be encouraged to know that we can always trust in God. So even though our world and the circumstances around us um, are nothing for us to place any type of trust in because they're forever changing and a lot of it is rooted in in much evil, we ourselves still need to be and remember that it's important for us 
to be trustworthy for other people because that glorifies God. So an example of this is in Psalm 56. David expressed such a confidence and trust in God. When God, I'm sorry, when David was feeling fear for his life because of the pursuit of his enemies, he chose to put his trust in God, so much so that he no longer felt afraid since he was being pursued by mere men, but he had put his trust in the living God. We need to note that fear will try to come upon us in our lives, but as we choose to trust in God, that fear will diminish and we don't ever need to let it have power over us. And that's a really important statement because we don't want to come under fear. When we're under fear, we're going to be manipulated and controlled by fear and by fear-based messages um, and propaganda that we might be exposed to. We don't want to come under fear. It's often said that fear and faith cannot coexist. If we look at one of the Greek words for trust, It's the word paiso, which means to win over, to persuade, and it's the root of the Greek word for faith, which is pistis. So when we trust somebody, we believe in them and are persuaded that they will do what's best for us. We believe and are convinced of their ability and sincerity. And this is exactly what the word paiso means. We have faith in that person and trust in them. But how does this faith and trust remove our fear? Let's turn to the Hebrew word for trust, which is batak, and it's used in Psalm 56, which I just shared with you. Batak carries with it this idea of attaching oneself to another, and it can mean trust, to confide in, to be secure, and it has a basic meaning of something that is firm or solid. It's a word whereby one individual expresses complete confidence in the other. Thus, when we're expressing our trust in God, we're attaching ourselves to him. And if we're attached to him, his presence will cast out fear. Because perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18. So therefore, in our relationship with God, we can choose to trust in him. And then we can let our anxieties go and cling to God because we know that he is in control and that we can be confident in him and in his character. And this is what David chose to do as he actively trusted in God until that trust was fully completed. In other words, he continued the act of tying himself, attaching himself to God until he knew the job was finished. So here, David found healing from his fears healing that he very desperately needed, especially in the the verses that I just shared with you. So how can we apply trust then in the context of our emotional healing, especially because it can be so difficult to trust at times? The patients that I see in my practice usually cite trust as one of the top issues that's proven to be a continual struggle for them over time. For many, trust is so easily shattered, and once it's in pieces, it's very difficult to put those pieces back together again. They never seem to fit in quite exactly the same way. And that's because trust is fragile. And because of this, it needs to be treated as such. If someone confides something to a friend, and then that friend breaks their trust, the pain and feelings of betrayal can oftentimes seem overwhelming. We've all been in that boat at one time or another in our lives. 
and how we respond when our trust has been broken is crucial to our emotional health. For example, some people, when trust has been violated, will close themselves in and make an agreement with themselves along the lines of, I will never allow myself to become close to anyone again. This actually is a type of inner vow or simply a statement of the will that boxes a person in to a particular response pattern. Inner vows are not easily broken, and they're often hard to identify. In many cases, this vow is made subconsciously, and the person making it may not even realize that they've done so. And to add to that, a lot of these inner vows are made when we're children, because we're kind of not at a state where we can process through pain, um, especially at a very young age. So to protect our own hearts, a lot of times young children will make vows to themselves like this, and it's not until they see their life going down a certain path that they realize that something was decided when they were younger that's causing them to react the way that they do. And so that's one of the pieces that we do in therapy is we do look for inner vows. Um, so the fruit that can come from a, a vow like this, such as I'll never be able to let, I'll never lo- allow myself to become close to anyone again, can be seen easily. So looking at the fruit, a person whose trust has been shattered will likely distance themselves or pull back in many, if not all, of their relationships. They may hold another person at arm's length. They may refuse to take emotional risks for fear of the hurt that could result, or they may even become cynical and sarcastic, an indication that they're harboring anger deep down as well. So in essence, the fortress of protection that they've built around their heart becomes a prison from which they can't escape. And this is why it's so important that we don't become too invested in trying to protect ourselves from any and all pain that life may hold If we do get too invested in never wanting to feel hurt again, we will build many walls around our hearts and we'll never be willing to let anybody in for fear that they might hurt us. We need instead to trust that God can protect us and that he will protect us. That doesn't mean that we we won't ever be hurt, but at the same time, we don't need to Um, build such a strong barrier that it cuts us off from genuine and reciprocal relationships in our lives. God knows what we can handle, and he helps us handle what we're given. So no matter what man has done to hurt our trust, the Lord is fully and completely trustworthy. So we never need to fear that God will betray or break our trust. He's a perfect God, and it would be an impossibility for him to do so. He is our unchanging God. Satan, the enemy of our soul, works overtime to try to render us afraid of placing our trust in God. But we need to stand firm against his lies and choose instead, even though it might feel scary at first, to give our hearts to the Lord and trust every aspect of our lives to him. As we make the choice to do so, we will see him prove himself consistently and completely trustworthy in our lives. Our second healing concept uh, tonight for keys of healing is forgiveness. So Matthew 18.35 says, My heavenly Father will also do the same if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
So just some background here on this verse. Matthew 18.35 is the concluding statement from the parable of the unmerciful servant. This servant, who was pardoned of a large debt that he owed his master, much like the sin that we owe to God, did not pardon or forgive his fellow servant who owed him a small debt. Thus, he was handed over to the tormentors until he could pay back his debt. In the same way, we too can experience some form of torment, mental anguish, if we do not forgive from our hearts. Now, God is not going to torment us. That's the enemy. He's the tormentor. Rather, the Lord is in the business of bringing our healing and restoration. As such, one interpretation of this passage is that it is more of a warning to us as believers as to what we should abstain from, which is unforgiveness. Forgiveness clearly is something God wants us to do, and unforgiveness is clearly something the enemy wants us to The expression, handed him over, found in Matthew 18.34, is the Greek word paradidomai, which is compounded from the words para, meaning near, to the side of, or over to, and didomai, meaning to give. Therefore, it's essentially meaning to deliver or give over to the power of someone else. This someone else is the tormentor, oftentimes from the demonic realms, whose core meaning is rooted in the word basanizo, which has the meaning of to torment, harass, afflict with pain, bring about adverse circumstances. We are remaining in sin when we refuse to forgive. And this gives the enemy of our soul a legal right, so to speak, to harass us. In addition, our own unforgiveness can result in bitterness and resentment. What happens when we've developed bitterness in our lives? Hebrews 12 tells us, 12.15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness bringing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So we see that this bitterness leads to a defilement, which comes from the word myeno. Myeno has the basic meaning of staining with color, as in the staining of glass, and it therefore means to pollute or to defile. So as we look further into this passage, bitterness is rooted in the word picross, which was used to describe the fruit of a bitter gourd that was so bitter it was actually viewed as a type of poison. So we can see now how destructive unforgiveness can be, as it not only permits the enemy to afflict us, but this poisonous root forms in us and stains who we are and who God means for us to be. And I think that's really important to note because there are so many admonitions in Scripture about forgiveness, and oftentimes we hear it thrown around kind of casually or in a cliched or in a trite way, where people say, oh, you just need to forgive. Oh, you just need to let that go. You need to forgive. Yes, that's true. But we have to understand that there's also a process to forgiveness, um, which I'll get to shortly. And also, God mentions forgiveness so often because he knows how much damage it can do to us. So we need to look at it from a slightly different angle. It's not just this mandate that we must forgive for the sake of forgiving. It's because the Lord loves us so much that he doesn't want to see us go through 
the ramifications if we continue to harbor unforgiveness. That's an important piece to keep in mind as we're talking about forgiveness as it pertains to the healing process. Therefore, just as we need an antidote for a poisonous snake bite, we also need God's antidote of forgiveness in our lives. Forgiveness is the word ephemai, which is from the words apo, meaning away from, and haemi, meaning to send. Therefore, it means to send away from, to let go from one's possession. Now, this sending away is not just lip service. It requires a true release from the heart. All of this with true forgiveness, what we're discussing right now, needs to be a heart decision. It's not just mental assent. It's not just an intellectual choice. This does have to be done from a heart level. There's no, there is such a healing release when we're able to forgive someone. And we can see that as we obey God and extend forgiveness from the heart to others, we let the offense go away from us, along with that poisonous bitterness that I was referring to that stains us. And this is truly freeing. So applying this now to healing, and this is a big key, a big concept to healing. Unforgiveness is one of the biggest roadblocks to healing that I see in people's lives at my practice every single day. When one of us has been hurt and the spirit of offense is then allowed entry, it becomes very difficult um, in terms of the battle to truly forgive a perceived unjust wrongdoing. Forgiveness is so important in our Christian walk and relationship to others that it's mentioned over and over again in scripture, as I just uh, referenced. And I believe that by harboring an attitude of unforgiveness in our heart, as I mentioned again, we are really hurting ourselves, the person who's offended us. They can be proceeding on with their life as usual, just going about their business, while we are held in bondage by what they did to us. This is why I tend to help patients view forgiveness as kind of an act of healing for ourselves. And that may sound unconventional, but in essence, we are the ones who benefit when we choose to forgive. The burden lives off of us, not the other party. We can then walk in freedom and release that person over to God. And we need to keep in mind as well that although we have let that person off our hook, so to speak, they are still on God's hook, and he will deal with them in his timing. And I think that's where many people kind of get stuck, is that they don't see the Lord intervening on their behalf when someone has gravely hurt them. Um, they tend to then cause, it can affect faith, it can cause doubt. Um, why isn't God acting on my behalf? So be careful that that does not allow you to take offense at God. God has his timetable. He knows exactly when to intervene. He knows exactly how to deal with the people who have hurt us. And we have to learn to trust without fully understanding his ways, which we don't anyway. But when it comes to waiting on God to deal with a party that's hurt us, we have to do just that. We have to wait on him and trust his timetable. I also believe that a link exists between forgiveness and joy. When we make the daily choice and it usually is a daily choice, if not an hourly choice, to walk in forgiveness. We aren't weighed by, down by relational struggles, and we have a higher level of freedom as a result. 
So when we walk freely in the Lord, joy is easier to recognize and embrace because we're relatively unencumbered. Of course, it's still possible to have joy even when dealing with unforgiveness, but I personally don't believe we can experience experience it to the exact same extent. Also, our healing process is aided greatly by our willingness to forgive an offending party, which also links with the joy that we experience. And with this too, remember that the deeper the wound, the longer the journey. Um, Some of the patients I worked with have been seriously abused and very severely abused as children um, and adults. And so to expect them to be able to just um, jump immediately from confessing that to forgiving their offenders is not realistic. There's a process that needs to be gone through, um, and it can be a lengthy one at times, to process the pain and then come to that point where you're able to release that person to God and truly forgive from the heart versus just saying, yes, I forgive them as mental assent or intellectual assent from your head, but having it not ever touch your heart. And there is a difference. Some people and situations, and that much is a given, but God provides exactly the right amount of strength and grace to forgive even the most egregious offense. And he will provide untold blessings for us when we are obedient to forgive. If we can put these struggles into practice, we'll experience God's healing power in our lives in its full measure. So thirdly, we want to take a look at comfort as a healing key. And 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So a little background on this concept of comfort. There are a number of different means whereby we receive the comfort of God. And by digging into God's word, we can get... Uh, gain further insight into this concept. In the verses above, the noun form, paraklesis, and the verb form, parakaleo, are used for the words that are translated comfort. These words are taken from para, meaning near or to the side of, and kaleo, meaning to call means to call someone to come alongside and be near. And when we desire to be comforted, that's exactly what we want. Someone to come near us and offer words of comfort to us and encouragement. Since true comfort can't come from within ourselves in that moment. Interestingly, Kaleo has a first meaning in classical Greek meant to speak another in order that the other be closer either physically or in relationship. Therefore, when we call to God for his comfort, we actually become closer to God in that process. So it's also important to remember that we need to call up him. God is more than willing and ready and waiting to comfort us, but he wants us to express that need and desire of him to come nearer to us. As I always say, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. We want to realize that God wants us to activate our free will and ask him when we're in those moments of needing him and approach him and approach that throne of grace with boldness, asking for what we need from him. 
We must remember that God isn't far away from us anyway. Jesus told us in John 14, 16, and I will pray to the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. So we know that this comforter is the Holy Spirit and that can be found in John 14, 26. And Jesus said that he will abide with us forever. So here, comforter is the Greek word parakletos, which is another form of parakaleo. Therefore, when we cry out to God for his, the Holy Spirit does not have to go very far since, to help us since he already has taken up residence within us, for we as believers are the temples of the Spirit of God. Parakletos actually goes beyond the meaning of comfort. In classical Greek, a parakletos was a legal advisor or advocate who came forward on behalf of another to be their representative much like a lawyer today who offers legal representation. However, unlike a lawyer, we don't need to pay for him to come alongside us. We just need to call out to him. And finally, we need to remember that God comforts us in not just a few, and that his comfort is continuous and repeated, as this is what the verb tense that is being used in the Greek means. If we know that God is there through our afflictions, those things that try to crush, press, or squeeze us, let us receive his healing comfort by choosing to call on the wonderful name of Jesus. So continuing with our application of comfort in the healing journey. I can't overstate the value and importance of giving comfort to those who are suffering. Even the act of showing comfort to another hurting person an act as small as a quick hug or an encouraging word or just a touch of the hand can be very healing in and of itself. Because when we're in pain, emotional, physical, or otherwise, it can be so reassuring to receive a gesture or a word of comfort from someone who cares. And scripture instructs us to comfort one another during these difficult times. Even though what we offer to another in the way of comfort might seem small or insignificant to us, it may be just what the person on the receiving end needs to make it through just one more day. The comfort that the Lord offers us when we're hurting is perhaps one of the most healing experiences that we can have in him. As he knows how to comfort us perfectly, he knows our deepest needs without our even needing to ask. He knows what we're going through emotionally, and he knows exactly how to minister to us, exactly when we need it. Christ is often depicted in drawings and paintings as holding a sheep in his tender arms of comfort. This picture truly is a worth a thousand words as it's a powerful visual representation of what we can experience when we allow ourselves to be held in his loving grasp. Scripture even tells us in Isaiah 40:11, in his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. Oftentimes, this is precisely the picture we need of Christ, of him holding us close to his heart. The type of comfort God gives is emotional, spiritual, and relational. Because Christ himself was a man of sorrows, and because he has walked through and been tempted by all of the same things that we face in our own lives, he relates to everything that we go through. Out of his ability to relate with us and our suffering, he then sends us just the right type of comfort that he knows we need at that moment. 
we may experience his comfort in a number of different ways, including a peace that washes over us, a strong sense of his presence with us, his perfect love embedding itself deep within our soul, or an inner knowing that everything will be all right, just to name a few. It grieves Christ when he sees one of his own beloved children hurting or suffering, and his heart goes out to that child to bring the fullness of his healing comfort as only he can provide. When we cry out to the Lord, Scripture says that he hears our cry and that he runs to us. He runs to us to bring us his comfort. He doesn't just do this once in a while or from time to time, but each time we need him. We have to trust in the promise of his comfort and let it minister to our hearts in a way that will not only soothe our wounds and our hurts, but that will bring a full measure of his healing to us as well. The fourth key concept of healing is contentment. So Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So starting again with some background, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that he's, been, that he's learned to be content in whatever situation he was facing. This may seem quite remarkable to us, especially if we consider the fact that the Apostle likely wrote this letter during his first imprisonment in a Roman jail. In the above verse, Paul uses a Greek word, artekos, which in English means content. It's an adjective that describes Paul's condition. It is formed from the word atos, which means himself, and arkao, which has the meaning of to suffice, be sufficient, or to have sufficient strength. Thus, it means to be self-sufficient, but in a good sense. This word really conveys the idea that one has made the inward choice to be sufficient or content, and that choice is independent of one's circumstances. The Apostle Paul had been through times of both plenty and times of lack. It was through these circumstances that he learned to be content. So here for the word learned uh, is monthano, and it is defined quite simply as to learn. It carries with it the more specific meaning of to learn by use and practice. Another interesting observation is that the apostle uses the active voice in the Greek which means that he is the one doing the learning. He's learning to be content. It doesn't just happen automatically. And he uses the past tense, whereby he says that he has learned this at a specific point in time, called the aorist verb tense in Greek. So if we bring all this together, the Apostle Paul is indicating that he, through use and practice, has come to the point where he has learned, whatever the circumstance, to be content by making the inward choice to find sufficiency. Another word for contentment is seen in the book of 1 Timothy uh, and in first, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul states, but godliness is actually means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In this verse, the word for contentment is autarkeia, and it's very similar in meaning autarkes, mentioned above. Here, it also communicates the meaning of a satisfied mind or disposition. The word for great gain conveys the idea of a large gain or an acquisition, 
So therefore, if we can maintain an attitude of contentment by choosing to find sufficiency and while pursuing godliness, this will result in a large acquisition to our spiritual growth and maturity. Achieving spiritual maturity is essential to our healing process, and contentment is one of the means that the Lord uses to bring about healing in our lives. And of course, understand that this is really describing the lifelong process of sanctification. This is not something that we come upon easily. (laughs) Um, This is part of spiritual maturity, the spiritual growth process, and it's something that involves our growing in the Lord and working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in Scripture. So don't be discouraged if you're not at this point yet. This is a growth process. And it can be one step forward, two steps back. And the Lord understands that. So wherever you're at with it, just let this be a challenge um, to go a bit further to learn to be content in what I just described as the Apostle Paul teaches us in in God's Word. So more application of contentment in regards to healing. Comparison is a surefire way to lose our contentment. We can end up causing ourselves much unnecessary turmoil by constantly looking to those around us and then evaluating ourselves based on our assessment of them. So part of our emotional and spiritual maturity is accepting and even embracing the lot that we have in life, including what we own, how we look, where we live, and so forth. We can also slip into a it's a never it's never enough mentality in regards to our earthly possessions and treasures. This is an easy trap to fall into because mainstream media, social media, a lot of messages and culture do a stellar job of creating reasons why we should buy all the latest such and such, that that's going to bring us happiness, and they play on our, our emotional reactions in order to reel us in. We need to watch our eye gates and our ear gates with this whole concept. And we want to reach a point where we're fully content with what we do have, understanding that God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, and that he's given us all that we need. He also owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He is our provider. So if we are lacking, we can approach him and ask him for what we need. And he is more than able and willing to pour out when we seek him. Um, for our needs in this life. And we simply need to ask him. There's a phrase, you have not because you ask not. Some think it's biblical, some think it's paraphrased, some think there's different views on it. But there's the point of it being is that if we find ourselves just living down too close to the carpet, as I sometimes say, are we remembering to ask God for what we need? It's something to ponder, and it's something important that has to deal with our ability to trust him for provision. So simply put, in terms of contentment, some things in life cannot be changed to be suited to our liking. And if we try to change them, it can end up backfiring on us. So we've all heard the serenity prayer. It states, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's always best that a person be a first class himself rather than a class someone else. 
God created each of us from a unique blueprint meant only for us. And as soon as we allow ourselves to become dissatisfied with his creation, we open the door to unhappiness and disappointment. Along the same lines, there are many times in life when we can't change the circumstances that surround us. We have two choices at this juncture. We can struggle and strive and battle and fight our way through to try to change them, or we can try to accept them as they are. It's clear that the only decision that will bring peace to our soul is the latter. Turmoil will be the byproduct of the former, which is to strive and try to fight our way to change circumstances that can't be changed. We can freely choose our reaction, our response to our circumstances, even though we can't always choose the circumstances themselves. So when we choose to respond with contentment and put all of our cares into the Lord's arms, we have made the healthiest choice that we can make. And finally, we'll look at repentance as a key of healing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So starting with some background here. Our entrance into God's kingdom is through the doorway of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And that is our salvation when we choose to accept him as Savior, Lord, and King in our heart, over our lives. However, our repentance doesn't necessarily stop there. Rather, it continues as we live out and walk out our faith with the Lord. It's one of the foundational elements of our Christian life, whereby we mature with that foundation that's already laid. See Hebrews 6, 1 to 2. Unfortunately, it becomes all too easy for us to turn to God for forgiveness for our post-conversion sins, which God is willing to forgive, than to also repent of those sins, which is what God ultimately wants us to do. So in order to add repentance back into our lives and be able to understand how repentance brings healing, it will help us to look at the biblical definition of repentance. The Apostle Paul contrasts two types of sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10, sorrow from God and sorrow from the world. The Greek word from sorrow, lupe, means grief, sorrow, emotional or physical pain, and is used in the expression kata theon lupe, which literally means sorrow down from or according to God. The expression tuo kosmo lupe, which means sorrow of or from the world, is the other type of sorrow. When we have sorrow that comes from God, It literally works and labors in us until it works out or produces life-giving repentance. Sorrow from the world, on the other hand, does not have the same effect as it only works and labors in us until it produces death. It's the same process but very different results. Let me explain that further. Obviously, anything that leads to death does not promote healing in our lives. So what is the difference then between these two types of sorrow? It's really tied up in the Bible's two different Greek words for repentance. One is metanoia, and the other is metamelomai. Metanoia is used in the passage above, 
and it's rooted in the words meta, meaning together with or a change of condition, and noeo, meaning to perceive or to think, which comes from the Greek word for the mind, which is nous. Thus, this word, metanoia, literally means a change in the condition of how a person thinks or perceives in one's mind. And it is this changing of the mind that truly defines the repentance that leads to life. Metamelomai, however, is derived from the same meta. However, it's compounded with mellow, which is a Greek word meaning, uh, carries a meaning of being concerned. So therefore, it has this meaning, the sense of regretting what one has done or changing one's feelings about something. It represents more of a feeling of remorse rather than a fundamental shift in how one views what one has done wrong. It brings an old adage to mind. Sorry for being caught rather than sorrow for what one did. This word is used in the expression, quote, felt remorse, unquote, in Matthew 27, 3, which states, then when Judas, who had betrayed God, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So here, Judas regretted what he had done, as expressed by his worldly sorrow, but he didn't truly repent of his wrongdoing, which would have been expressed by godly sorrow. And we would not know this difference if we didn't study the original Greek, which is one of the reasons that I'm so adamant about looking uh, back to the original Greek in the New Testament, back to the original Hebrew in the Old Testament, to find out these subtle differences that turn out to be not so subtle. So in the end, with Judas, um, his worldly sorrow literally led to death as he took his own life. If we, on the other hand, can truly change our mind about the wrongs we may have done, the healing process can begin as we choose to get back on the path that God has chosen for us. And that's that word metanoia, which is the changing of the mind. So continuing with this application of repentance as the key to the healing process, as stated for, uh, before, the root of the word repentance literally means to change one's mind. This gives us good insight into exactly what happens when we repent of sin. We're saying to the Lord that we are no longer going to go in that direction. And instead, we activate our will to change our mind about the sin, and we walk in the other direction when we do this. We take ownership of what we've done, we've done and choose to no longer continue to participate in that behavior. This then gives the Lord an opportunity to work in our hearts and help us strengthen our resolve to not go back into a particular sin situation. So repentance is vitally important because it keeps our heart from being hardened and as such our conscience seared. To sin, the longer we stay in sin without repenting, the harder the shell around our heart can become, which is a dangerous place to be in because then it becomes much more difficult for us to sense the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings when we go off track. It's so important that we remain teachable and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading 
because it affects so many areas of our lives, including healing. I believe that the importance of repentance in the healing process is often underestimated. The reality is that sin has the ability to produce much affliction and suffering in our lives, especially if it's left alone and never addressed or repented of. Sin that has not been repented of can very quickly and easily open a door to the realms of darkness, giving the enemy legal ground to operate in our lives in certain areas. So sin of any kind can serve as a major roadblock, directly or indirectly, to our healing process. One main indication that sin is at the root of an unhealed heart issue is the presence of guilt surrounding a particular wound. We need to be aware, of course, that there is also a type of false guilt that the enemy uses, along with condemnation and shame. But true guilt is a sign that the Holy Spirit may be bringing conviction to an area of our lives. The Lord gently nudges us to repent. He does not harshly shame or browbeat us or condemn us into it. That is the enemy's strategy. So it's crucial that we know and that we also correctly discern that difference. If we seek God on a regular basis and ask him to search our hearts, as is exemplified uh, for us by David in Psalm 51, the Lord will shed his light and his truth on areas where sin may be at the root of an unhealed emotional or spiritual issue. And if this is the case, then we know that our first step to healing is to change our mind, to repent, and to no longer choose to remain in that particular area of sin. The Lord is always faithful to show us what's operating in our hearts, so we need only to be willing to see it for what it is. So that wraps up the final key concept in this two-part series on key concepts for healing. And I do pray that it has blessed all of you. I pray that it has ministered to you in the areas that you've needed it. And I'll just wrap up tonight with this final thought. True healing is a journey much more than it is a mere destination. It, It can be challenging at times, and for this reason, some people may shy away from entering into this life-changing process, the healing journey. But I encourage you to stretch your trust and faith in God and permit him to gently guide you as you examine your heart and allow him to apply his healing balm to your soul and spirit. Jesus' healing and his truth can bring freedom to your life. So that's all the time that we've got left for tonight, and I'd love to close you in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for um, the all who are listening tonight, all who have heard this these, this two-part message, or maybe just tonight's uh, message, Lord God. But I pray, Lord, that it reaches each one in the way that they need it, Lord. We thank you, God, um, for each person who's listening tonight, Lord God, who needed to hear these words needed to hear about these concepts for their healing journey, Lord, to understand these concepts at a deeper level and how they fit in with the full picture of what healing really looks like. Thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God and that your Holy Spirit provides us with everything that we need for life and for godliness. And thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit also aids us, comes to our aid, gives us the strength and grace and courage in many cases, that we need to begin a healing journey or to continue a healing journey, Lord God. 
So I just pray, Lord, that um, all who need to move forward and if they feel that they're stuck, that that this would just be an impetus, um, maybe a an event, this this particular broadcast that causes them to set their mind to begin to walk with you hand in hand on a path to healing and wholeness in their own lives, Lord God. You don't just desire us to be healed, but you desire us to be whole, which is complete healing in all areas, fullness of everything that you have, life and life to the full. So we just ask now for all those that are within um, the hearing of my voice, that you would touch them in their hearts and in their spirits, Lord God, and help urge them on as they grow in you. And I just ask all these things now in your glorious and holy name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this evening, and I hope that you'll join me again next month for my next broadcast. If you'd like to contact me directly at Healing Word, my private practice, please feel free to call 414-254-9862 or visit my website at healing-word.com. Thank you very much, and God's richest blessings be upon you.